This is the To The Point Podcast. Together with our ERISA attorney, we'll explore key Affordable Care Act and trending compliance topics, all in 15 minutes or less. Now here's our host, Sarah Gillespie. Welcome to another To The Point Podcast. This is Sarah Gillespie. I'm the Compliance Director at Lipscomb Pitts Insurance in Memphis, Tennessee. I hope everyone is doing well today. I have with me again, Bob Radicke. He is the Senior Regulatory and Public Policy Analyst at Benefit Comply and a part of the Lipscomb Pitts Compliance Team. Hey, Bob, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Sarah? I'm happy to join you and talk about some more exciting compliance stuff. Absolutely. It's our life (laughs) and we love it, don't we? (laughs) Um, But you know what's crazy? It's December 2021. Mm. It is almost 2022. It just blows my mind. It's been another interesting year and employers have had to continue to deal with COVID-related disruptions and regulations in their businesses. I really think we all thought that once the clock turned from 2020 to 2021, somehow magically things would get better. And yet here we are almost ready to go into 2022 and it's still here. So interesting, interesting is an interesting word you use for that, Sarah. I have a couple other words I would use, but this is a public broadcast. That's so we'll, correct. We'll, we'll let you keep interesting. We're keeping. Yes. Yes. We're going to keep it clean for our audience. But yeah, y'all, y'all fill in the blank. We'll say that. Um, what we want to do with this podcast is talk about what you need to do to prepare for 2022. We're not really looking to relive where we've been. So this is not exactly a review of 2021, but there are some things that we need to run through that have happened in 2021 that you'll need to do to prepare for 2022. So I'm going to start and um, I want to talk about some COVID related updates to employee benefit plans. Okay, the following items will require an amendment to your flexible spending account or your dependent care account by the end of the 2021 plan year if you chose to adopt them. So before I run through that, I'll just back up and say that when these things were allowed, they said that you can go ahead and add them to your plan. The amendment needs to be done. And as long as you do it by the end of that plan year, the 2021 plan year in this case, you're good. So here's kind of a list of those things. If you rolled over the full unused amount remaining in your 2020 FSA or dependent care account to the 2021 plan year, you'll need to do an amendment. If you extended your FSA or dependent care account grace period of up to 12 months after the end of the plan year, you would need to do an amendment. This is starting to sound like you might be a redneck. I don't mean that, (laughs) but (laughs) okay. So I'll keep going here. Um, uh, If you allowed employees who stopped participating in their cafeteria plan during the 2021 calendar year to continue to receive reimbursements, from that health health FSA's unused benefits or unused contributions through the year, that would require an amendment. Um, This one's interesting. If you allowed employees who participated in the dependent care plan for 2020 with a dependent who turned 13 during the 2020 plan year to submit reimbursements uh, for an unused balance up until a dependent turned 14, you would need to do an amendment. So if you have a dependent, you can uh, you can seek reimbursement for any child care related expenses up until they turn 13. So that's kind of where that came in is that, you know, obviously in 2020, we couldn't do child care for a while. And so if you had a child for whom you couldn't seek reimbursement and then the child turned 14, 
they actually thought of that for you. And there's um, something in there you could do with your plan. If you allowed employees to make a mid-year election to modify prospectively the amount of their contributions to a health FSA or dependent care account, you could do that without any regard to change in status. So, you know, a, a lot of things changed in 2020. They couldn't get the care that they needed. So FSA dollars were not being used that might have anticipated use. And so if you wanted to change that amount to a lower amount, or conversely, if you knew you were going to need more care, change it to a higher amount. And the same with dependent care, you were able to make that change without a, uh, a change in status, but you would have to amend your plan to acknowledge that. So Sarah, before you go on to the dependent care one, I just thought I'd make a comment, a bit of perspective, because a lot of people asked us, you know, why did they make all these changes? And and if you step back for a minute and look at the changes that that Sarah listed, what was happening here was Congress and the IRS, because some of this was legislative and some was regulatory, was really just trying to tweak things because of the pandemic. They they didn't want employees to lose money that they had set aside in their health FSA you know, because of everything that's going on in the world. So they're looking for these little technical changes they can make here and there, giving people more opportunities to, as you said, Sarah, make changes, do things, submit claims that aren't normally submitted, extend those things. Really, and it was all under the umbrella of, you know, these these poor employees set money aside before the pandemic started. We None of us knew what we were getting into. So let's just be more flexible and, and let's give them different ways to use up that money so they don't lose it. Um, administratively for employers, a lot of hassle, a lot of administrative work and stuff, but that was the that was the uh, public policy if you would think about it reason for all of these little changes well and i think too so definitely a good addition um i think too some employers were already doing things they were allowing employees just you know out of their generosity and understanding of the situation and all of that to make changes that might have gone against what the irs would have otherwise normal rules exactly Yep. And so I think this just kind of is the legal way of making everything people might have already done work out. I think that's yeah. right. Um, and the last thing that that I have on the list just for the FSA decap section is that if you uh, you could increase pre-tax contributions for a dependent care account from five thousand to ten thousand five hundred. Uh, for the twenty twenty one tax year. So if you did that, it would require an amendment. So I'm not going to go through any of those in any further detail. If you want to talk about those, or really, if you want to talk about anything that Bob and I cover, always feel free to reach out to me. We're happy to go over any of it uh, in further detail. And the so, only thing I'll add to that last one, Sarah, is that's an important one. If For those of the people on the call that did increase it to 10.5, just make sure you know it's going away. It's going back to five next year. You know, so yeah. Yes, and, yes. Uh, that's so obviously an important yeah, be part. Be careful with your <laughs> enrollments this year. Important part to mention. Thank you for adding that. Yes. Um, okay. Last couple uh, of updates that would relate to your cafeteria plan and maybe other plan documents. So they updated section 213 allowable expenses to include over-the-counter drugs and menstrual products. So this is actually a permanent change. So if you wanted to amend your plan to include those, you can do so, and it would be an ongoing allowance. Um, They also added coverage for personal protective equipment, PPE, which could be reimbursed by HSAs, health FSAs, and HRAs. And then... Um, This is one that I especially think of when I I had mentioned before, you know, employers were allowing things that maybe 
weren't under IRS rules, but the IRS permitted mid-year election changes to newly elect coverage. So for people who might have waived coverage to newly elect coverage mid-year um, to revoke existing coverage to enroll in another plan the employer sponsored or to revoke coverage altogether if they attested to enrollment in other non-employer sponsored coverage. So you could not revoke coverage just to have none, but you could revoke it either to go into another plan the employer offered or another plan not sponsored by the employer, spouse's plan, exchange plan, whatever, maybe. But um, I definitely saw employers doing those kinds of things before that mm-hmm. one came out. Mm-hmm. So just another one of those official, if you'd happen to do that, you should amend your plan before the end of the plan year. Okay, Bob, can you talk to us about some things that might be ending as of December 31st, 2021? Well, the one I think that we're getting the most questions on is, is this telemedicine change that we got. You know, when the pandemic first started, for obvious reasons, um, the, the government wanted to help and encourage people to use telemedicine because none of us were going into the doctor's office for right, for a long period of time. Remember that? I mean, it seems so long ago, right? During 2020, nobody went to the doctor. Um, and so they expanded um, the rules where people could use telemedicine in a variety of ways. But one of the more interesting ways was they allowed a telemedicine benefit to reimburse and pay us for, or, or, you know, those, those, those visits, um, it, even if we had an HSA. So a little background, right? Normally with an HSA, you can't have other coverage that, that pays for any medical costs before you meet your minimum deductible. If you do, you're ineligible to make HSA contributions, right? That's been the rule for umpteen years. Normally, if telemedicine covers visits, online visits, things like that, before you meet your minimum HDHTP deductible, that would make you ineligible for HSA contributions. So what the IRS said was, well, we want these people to use telemedicine. So let's let's make it okay. Let's let people get rich telemedicine benefits and still be able to make HSA contributions. That was the, the, the mindset. That is going away in a month. (laughs) At the end of this year, your telemedicine benefit, if you have one on your plan, if your employees want to be HSA eligible, has to follow the old rules. You have to make employees pay their full deductible, required deductible under the under the HSA HDHP rules before it covers anything but preventive. Right. We know our plans can cover preventive. That's a different issue. Um, and so I'll, I'll be, be careful. Uh, telemedicine vendors can do that. They can set up the plans this way. But if you expanded those telemedicine benefits because of this allowance and you keep it that way, your folks that want to make HSA contributions starting January 1st are going to be ineligible. So that's an important one. Yeah, definitely. Um Okay, let's Bob, let's spend some time talking about the Consolidated Appropriations mm. Act. I know you guys have done a lot of great webinars on this topic. There are so many things within it, but let's just unpack the two that are maybe um, most urgent or, or most mm-hmm. applicable, surprise billing and the mental health parity comparative analysis. What How much time do you have, that? Sarah? You, you didn't, you <laughs> didn't tell the me high, this. the high yeah. level version. The high you didn't, level you didn't tell me this podcast was a three hour podcast. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So the surprise billing one, I, I think the, the, the main point for employers to take away with the surprise billing one is to remind you that these the, the point of the surprise billing legislation is to protect your employees from these 
you know, when they go out of network, your plan only pays a certain amount and the out of network provider um, balance bills the employee for a huge amount of money because they can charge anything they want. Right. And, and, and the problem is that the surprise billing legislation that passed Congress only applies to a particular certain particular out-of-network bills, not all out-of-network bills. I think there's a misunderstanding there. Some people think it protects you from any out-of-network you know, balance billing. It doesn't. It protects you when you go out-of-network for emergency services. It protects you when you go to an in-network facility like a hospital or something, and um, the uh, you're, you're treated by an out-of-network provider. So, you know, we might go into the in-network hospital and have an anesthesiologist that they're using that's an out-of-network provider. And in the old days, before, well, old days, currently, that that out-of-network provider could have balanced, billed you for whatever the insurance didn't pay. That that won't happen anymore. And then air ambulance. So at a high level, how it's going to work for those types of claims, the payer, the insurance company, and the, and the, and the provider, the out-of-network provider, are going to have to agree on an amount. Well, I won't go through the Corey details of how that works, but the important part is that provider then cannot balance bill your member, your employee for the difference if they don't like what they're paid, what they settle on, what they're paid. Okay. Um, this is one of those ones, Harry, we and I talk about a lot that um, it, the employer really doesn't have anything to do with administering this. It's really more of a communication issue for your employees. So they understand it, you know, your TPA who processes the claims and your carrier, if you're fully insured, they're the ones that are processing these claims. They're the ones that are going to be negotiating the payments with the providers. That's all going to be happening in the background. Um, and what you really want to do as an employer is make sure your employees understand what hap- what it applies to and watch out for, so that they're not balanced billed for these kind of things. I think there'll still be some mistakes that are made where providers will still try to balance bill patients when it's subject to this rule. So I think that's that's our job is to help our employees sort through this so they're not getting those balance bills. I can't resist, Sarah. I one time made a comment that, well, who's going to ever go into the hospital and when the anesthesiologist comes in and 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 is about to put the gas mask on your face, um, are going to ask them whether they're in network or out of network. But I heard a vicious rumor that I know someone who did something similar to that. Is that true? Me. It was me. <laughs> but I I have to say, my defense, I worked for Cigna for many, many years, and I know all about hidden providers. And so when I went into the hospital to have my second daughter or my, my second child, my only daughter, um, before that anesthesiologist gave me that epidural, I said, stop. Are you in network with Cigna? <laughs> I'm, sorry. I, I'm sorry, but you're the only person in the world that I know that's ever done that. So I had to Well, the truth is, what was I actually going to do? Go without one? No, so right. I, I don't, I mean, <laughs> that was not an option for me. So anyway, I, I couldn't resist. I had to, I had to bring that up. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the other one you asked me to ask, talk about was the mental health parity rules. So um, this is a concern because the Department of Labor has made it very clear that they're really concerned that we're administering our plans properly under the mental health parity rules. And one of the things that they're asking us to do as as plan sponsors is do an analysis, an analysis of how our plans operate, what's called the the, the non-quantitative treatment rules that apply in our plans. So what that means is it's the stuff like, it's not whether you pay the same amount deductible and co-insurance for mental health coverage. It's stuff like, do you have different second opinion rules or do you have different medical management rules that apply to mental health claims that don't apply to other claims? That, that, that violate these rules. Again, the employer's not the one that's doing this. Who, who's doing the, the medical management behind the scenes when claims are submitted? Well, it's your carrier and your TPA. 
And so our position is the carrier and the TPAs have to step up and, and be able to demonstrate to us, the employers, that they're following these rules. And I know, Sarah, I know you and your team at Lipscomb and Pitts you know, are having these discussions with, with carriers and TPAs and making sure that they're, they're following these rules on behalf of our clients. But this is one that we're going to watch. And again, we're going to have to you know, do our due diligence and twist the arms of our carriers and TPAs to make sure they give us what they need. But there's really not something the employer themselves can do. They can't go audit the medical management department of the TPA. Well, no, I mean, they really can't. And they don't know, for instance, you know, when I was going through all the different things, like the methods used to determine provider reimbursement rates is a non-quantitative treatment limit, potentially. How would anybody know that that doesn't work there? So um, this is one of those things that we are definitely working with our partners on to try to make sure that they can produce for our employer clients. Yeah, so some big things we'll be watching next year for you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, another big topic that we want to talk about is uh, Biden's vaccination mandate. So we know that the compliance due dates have been suspended because of pending litigation. But I think it's important that employers understand that OSHA fully intends to defend their position. Mm -hmm. So if the stay is lifted, employers need to be prepared to quickly comply with various aspects of this rule. And we do have just a quick checklist of things that would just be a good place to start in preparation should that happen. Um, Bob, let's run through those real yeah, quick. Yeah. And then I know we've got some other comments um, yep, yep. on that. Yeah. So, you know, we, we know that the rule says it applies to employers with 100 or more employees. Um, there is some it's not clear yet. And we expect more guidance from uh, the department to define who that 100 is. Right now, it's kind of a, a softy definition. It's like if, if related entities and you know, if I own if I own two companies um, and they both have 51 employees, are they both subject to this rule? Well, <laughs> what the what OSHA said was if I handle safety uh, the same in the same way for the, my two companies, then you come them both together. Well, that's a really kind of gray description. We need more help than that. We need more guidance from that. I know they're getting lots of questions. So hopefully we'll see more of that. Um, yeah, I think your second bullet point is, is very important. Right now, employers should start collecting the vaccination status of their employees currently. There's lots of reasons you want to know that, but you'll need to know that if this rule moves forward in terms of the actions you have to take. So that's a good thing you can do now. Um, you know, you mentioned the, it's a mandate. There's really two choices in that mandate, though. Um, the mandate says you can either require vaccinations of everyone. That's option one. Or you can require vaccinations or if they don't want to be vaccinated, make them go through weekly testing and have to wear a mask at work. So you're going to have to decide on which approach you're going to pursue because that weekly testing business administratively could be pretty challenging. Right. So it's not just really simple to say, I'll just let people weekly test. It raises a whole whole nother set of questions about how you handle that testing. Employers don't have to pay that for the testing, but administratively, it's going to be probably a bit of a circus for some employers. There are rules that some remote workers and workers that work only outside don't have to be subject to the ETS. You have to know if any of those apply to you. And Real importantly, it requires a written policy. So it's not just you have to do this. It actually requires that the employer have a written policy. Um, I want to point you to the OSHA ETS um, vaccine mandate website. Again, I'm not selling them. I'm just, but there is a ton of information on there, including two sample employer policies. 
So employers that are looking at this, I just want you to know that that's there because at least if this moves forward, there are some resources there. There's also an FAQ that already has a hundred questions in it about this. So I don't have the website address, but if you do OSHA vaccine ETS, you'll land on that website. So uh, last thing I'll just say about it is just, um, you know, stay tuned. <clears throat> um, who knows if the, this, uh, the, the, the mandate is going to survive the court challenges or not. Um, there is going to be a hearing in the sixth district circuit court of appeals very shortly. We don't have a, I haven't seen a date yet, but it's going to probably happen over the next couple of weeks. Um, when that, district decides what what they think, I guarantee you, whoever loses is going to appeal it to the Supreme Court. So we won't know the final answer until the, the circuit court issues their decision. And then the Supreme Court decides whether or not they're going to weigh in on it. So stay tuned. Um, and we'll keep you posted as we as we see how this plays out. Yeah. And so, Bob, I think there were some other comments that um, we were discussing yesterday, you know, about, okay, so there is this vaccine mandate, but let's not forget there were other options before right. this, this uh, mandate came along. Right. You want to talk about those? Yeah. So, you know, before the mandate was issued, the big news was when Delta Airlines imposed a surcharge on employees. Remember that? That seems like old news already. But, you know, Delta Airlines made big news when they said their employees were going to pay a surcharge. I can't remember what it was, $250 a month or something like that if they were not vaccinated. And and that became a kind of a talk among a lot of employers. So um, I, I, I like to point out that, you know, there are I think employers need to be thinking about those surcharges or incentives um, if they're interested in doing something about their employee vaccination rates, because we don't know if the mandate's going to survive, right? It, it, it may get thrown out. Even if the mandate survives, there's going to be some employers that, you know, this, this weekly testing option, like I said, is going to be administratively pretty difficult. And so maybe employers will want to put some incentives or surcharges in place to try to move more of their employees from the testing side of the uh, of the ledger to the being vaccinated side of the ledger right and so just to point out on the on the um, incentives and sur surcharges and Sarah you've been helping employers think about this already as long as it's done under the HIPAA wellness rules that's what you have to pay attention to if you're going to do a surcharge or a mandate I'm sorry, surcharge or an incentive. You know, the incentive or the surcharge can only be 30% of the plan premium, other things that apply to the typical um, uh, wellness rules. Um, it, it's a strategy that more and more employers, I think, are going to think about, especially if the mandate is thrown out. Okay. And what we've found and what we know now is that unvaccinated employees have a much higher rate of hospitalization and claim costs than vaccinated employees. It's just a fact. And so some employers are looking at that. And then that increased cost to their health plan, they're looking at it similarly to how they look at a smoking surcharge. For years, we've had employers have a smoking surcharge because they know that the smokers cost their health plan more than the non-smokers. And, and so I think, you know, employers are looking at this, let's see what happens with the mandate, but a lot of employers are going to revisit this, especially, unfortunately, and I hate to end with a downer, Sarah, but it looks like this Corona thing is going to be with us for a while and maybe even a long time. And if that's the case, then I think employers are going to be looking at strategies like incentives like surcharges on their health plan to try to continue to encourage and, um, you know, whether you call it a carrot or a stick, try to get more and more of their employees vaccinated. 
Yeah. And so this is a conversation that you want to have. Please reach out to me and we can have that. We can talk about strategies for your business, um, you know, while we're waiting to find out what's going to happen with this vaccine mandate. Um, Okay, there's one other thing that I want to mention just to prepare for 2022. We're not going to go in depth because we actually recorded a whole podcast just on this topic, but it is ACA reporting, the beloved and hated ACA reporting. (laughs) So just a quick couple of things. There was what we talked about in this other podcast, good news and maybe bad news. Um, The good news is there are proposed regulations that will have a 30 day extension of time to furnish forms to employees that will be permanent. So it used to be due uh, January 31st and the new due date. Well, you can still turn them in early, of course, but there's an automatic 30 day extension until March 2nd that would apply for furnishing forms to employees. So. That's the good news. A little bit more time there. Um, But before I move on, I will say the deadlines to submit these to the IRS have not changed. This is just the deadline to provide the forms to employees. The not so good news is that there is no more good faith relief. So. Bob, yeah. <laughs> you got to uh, you got to share this news in our other podcast. You want to give the, the quick highlights? Yeah, it's just what the IRS has been doing for the last few years is this. And let's be clear, this has nothing to do with the penalties that would apply to you if you don't offer coverage to your employees. Right. There's under under the ACA, if you don't offer coverage to your full time, if you're a large employer, if you don't offer coverage to your employees, you can face a penalty if it's unaffordable. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is there are penalties just for not reporting, just like there would be a penalty for not sending in a W-2. Okay. And what's been happening the last few years is the IRS has been imposing penalties already on employers if they send in their reporting late. They've already been penalizing employers for that, but they've been giving us a pass if we've got some mistakes or errors in our reporting. We code it wrong or we use some wrong codes. As long as we're making a good faith attempt to report, they're not penalizing us for incorrect forms. The IRS has made a clear statement this year that that good faith relief is going away, that we do face in the future also being penalized if we file in correct forms. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to impose the maximum penalty every time, but it's really a warning shot over the bow by the IRS saying, all right, we've been doing this enough years now. You should be getting this you know, <laughs> right. And so your coding should be correct. And so we it, starting with this year's reporting, there's a higher level of scrutiny that you should give that your form 1095s and 10 are, are coded correctly and filled out correctly. And your 1094 is completed correctly because we face a new potential penalty from the IRS for submitting incorrect forms. And as we said that we actually did complete a whole podcast on this topic. So if you've got more questions and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> Please listen to that, because I think we we tried to share a lot more, give some suggestions of ways you could deal with um, the lack of good faith relief and all of that kind of thing. Um, well, Bob, I think that's all the information that we've got to share today, because like I said, we didn't want to dwell on the past where we've been and. <laughs> You know, I think we all are feeling about 2021 the way we were probably feeling about 2020, right. thinking we're going to turn the clock and it's all going to go away. 
and we've got this Omicron variant. So right. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I feel like it's it's with us for a while. Um, you know, the regulation yep. and, and information that we're going to have to keep on the forefront of our minds is um, yep. is something we'll still try to bring. Yep. If you've got questions, you want to reach out to Bob, you can do that through me, Sarah G, S-A-R-A-H-G at lpinsurance.com. And we are happy to help you. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Bob. Thanks as always for your insight and information. And we hope everyone has a great day.